You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Maheshwari. Um, who is another one of the Matrikas. Um, this is our series on the Matrikas. We're now probably just a little bit more than halfway through, because I think she's the, the fifth one that I'm discussing here. Um, now, Maheshwari is the... Okay, we've talked about the Matrikas as being the Shakti of certain male deities, um, except in the case of a, of a, a deity like Chamunda, um, they are usually the, the Shaktis of, of various gods. Let me talk about Brahmi as being the Shakti of Brahma, for example. Um, now, in this case, um, Maheshwari is actually the, um, she's the um, Shakti of Maheshwara, and Maheshwara is better known as the god Shiva. Okay? Now, um, to, to try to, now, first, when we talk, we're going to talk about her iconography, and you'll see that she is extremely similar to Shiva in the way that she looks. And in the way that she is is sort of depicted, um, her her mount, her animal that she rides on, uh, is the same as Shiva's, um, and, and she is very much the the Shakti of Shiva. Now, here's the thing: this gets a little bit confusing because a lot of people will therefore say, and I've read this in many places. Well, they'll say, "Oh, Maheshwari is the same as Parvati," and that is actually not correct. Um, Parvati and Maheshwari are not the same. Now, there may be some overlap because Parvati in some ways is considered to be, well, she is the reincarnation of Shakti or Sati, who was Shiva's first wife, um, who, as we know, was, she was self-immolated. She died and, and um, well, you know, um, and of course this caused Shiva to go into a rage of destruction. Um, but in spite of the fact that we have, you know, the, the goddess named Shakti or Sati, um, the Shakti of Shiva, it's still... We're using the term Shakti here not to literally refer to his wife, but rather to refer to his, um, his, his force or his power, which comes from the feminine, which comes from the, in quotes, Shakti. Maybe you want to say Shakti with a lowercase s rather than an uppercase. It's not necessarily a name. It's more of a, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's a word. I, it, to say that it's your soul is, is not entirely... Um, correct that's not you know that I don't think that entirely encompasses it but it's it's that idea it's that it's it's the force of consciousness that that runs through and and this is this is the force that gives the gods um their power that is their that is their vital energy if you will so in that case so we're not talking about literally talking about the wife of Shiva in this case we are talking about the Shakti um which is separate and holds a separate function okay so the question then becomes, okay, I, we, we, there's a few associations with Maheshwari that I want to talk about. In particular, her association um, with, with the bull, okay? Uh, she, is, she is associated with um, the, uh, you know, th- that is her mount. And that is Shiva's um, common animal too, Nandi, the bull, who accompanies him. Um, and, you know, so... You know, there's there's the you know, and of course, as we know that, um, you know, um, cows, bulls, you know, they're very sacred in um, 
in, in Hinduism, and not, not just because of Shiva. We hear about them with Krishna as well and, and other deities, you know, that there's, these, are the sac- these are sacred animals. Um, but the bull does have a very special significance. Um, the other thing to think about with Maheshwari, okay, she's associated with the vice of anger, Okay, because we know all the matrikas have a vice. So then the question becomes, well, you know, why anger in particular? But the more that you know about Shiva in particular, you understand um, that he is, while he is, you know, his name, uh, he, he implies that he is friendly and that he is merciful, but his, some of his earlier names, like Ruja, and in fact, Maheshwari is sometimes known as Rudrani or Rodri, which is probably a more accurate depiction of what she's like, because that has to do with one who roars. Okay, Rudra is one who roars. So this is the this is the more terrible aspect of Shiva. If you remember, in um, when we did the, the Mahavidya series, uh, Bervi um, is the sort of female counterpart to Berva, which is that terrible aspect of Shiva. Okay, so Shiva, and, and as we know, if we talk about the Tridevas, the the three, the creator, preserver, and destroyer of the universe, you have Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Shiva is associated with destruction. Uh, that said, Shiva is also associated with the creation of the universe. You always see the images of Shiva Shakti, for example, uh, in constant lovemaking, and in their lovemaking, their creative energy um, creates and sustains the universe. So Shiva is not just a, um, you know, so Shiva, while, while Shiva is associated with destruction, Shiva is also associated with creation. As we see, there's a real fine line between the two. Um, you know, and, and some of that we may look at as the death and rebirth motif, but, um, but the line between life and death is not quite as um, rigid as we kind of tend to think of it in the West. So, um, you know, as things are destroyed, they're created again. And we do see this in Shiva's nature. There are stories of him um, where he is, you know, he, where he goes, he gets very angry, he destroys something, but then, you know, someone immediately, they immediately throw, you know, throw themselves on his mercy and he, oh, okay, he immediately takes it back. Um, I think in particular, the, um, there was a story of the demon who um, wanted his wife Parvati, and uh, this just made Shiva angry, so he produced a monster um, the, uh, that to, um, you know, to, to devour him. And, uh, and, when he, and when this monster, you know, and, and, you know and, and so the demon immediately became afraid and threw himself on Shiva's mercy, and so Shiva immediately said, oh, okay, well, then the monster's not going to eat you. And then the monster said, um, you know, you know, well, you know, you created me to, to eat, devour, what should I eat? And Shiva says, well, eat yourself. And so then the monster devours itself from the feet up until only the face is left. And this sort of shining face is, is put on uh, the Kirti Mukha, is actually usually over Shiva's temples. And it represents that the sublime beauty of, like, the devouring nature of life. Uh, it's very interesting. That's a story, if, if anybody's, anybody who listens to this ever took a religion course with me, we know, you know that... Um, we go into the story of Kirti Mukha, you know, trying to get people to understand the idea of life devouring life. Um, because when you think about it, and, I, and, and really the point that sometimes is missed, because a lot of times my students will focus on like, well, you know, they think about us as being, say, a capitalist society or a consumer society and, and devouring in that sense. And, that, and that's certainly true. But what this is referring to is just the very nature of life itself um, involves death. In other words, in order for you to live, something has to die. 
um, you have to you have to kill animals to eat. If you're not if you say, oh, okay, I don't eat animals, I'm a vegetarian. Well, you still have to kill plants to eat. Those are living things too. You have to kill something that's alive in order for you for yourself to live. And this is the idea behind um, the idea of sacrifice, actually. Because the idea was that you made sacrifices, whether they were animal sacrifices, grain sacrifices, or, you know, vegetation sacrifices, or not not really so commonly, except maybe in certain places, like maybe, um, you know, among, you know, like we think of among the Incas or the Aztecs or something, where you would also have human sacrifice. And, you know, and again, the idea was that you gave back to the earth that gave you life. But, it, you know, as it gives life, you also, death is required for life. That's the implication there, Okay. And Maheshwadi, to a certain degree, um, kind of reflects this, this kind of line between the two. And as the anger of Shiva, this is, the, this is him in his most destructive um, kind of form. And, you know, so what I want to do is I want to talk about that relationship to Shiva, because that's very important for understanding the nature of Maheshwadi herself. And you also, the, her associations with the bull, and her association with the moon, remember we've said that all of the matrikas have an association with a graha or a planet. And in this case, she is associated with Chandra, which is the moon, okay? And that's interesting because the moon and the bull, um, I actually have a little passage that I'm going to um, read just briefly from, from Joseph Campbell's uh, book on um, Occidental mythology. Because, uh, he, you know, because certainly there was the idea um, he, he goes into Sumerian mythology, Greek mythology, and other places. I can't, I'm obviously not going to quote from everything that he mentions or every example, because there's a lot of them, uh, or what you find in ancient Minoan civilizations. You know, some of these symbols that, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some, some of it's up for interpretation, okay? Some of it comes from, you know, things like Fraser's Golden Bough and, and you know, and, and interpretations of made of places like the Palace at Knossos and stuff at, the t- at a time, when, you know, and some of those are dubious, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but nonetheless, the, the whole idea of the moon bull, which also is, um, you know, kind of plays into the mythology of Mithras and Mithraism as well. Um, the idea of, um, because the idea of, say, Mithras slaying the bull, um, it, it, at least on one level, is, is kind of an eclipse uh, motif. The idea of the, the moon blocking out the sun and then, you know, slaying the moon so that the sun can shine again kind of a thing. You know what I mean? That's just, you know, that's, there's a lot more to Mithraism than that. I'm not trying to be too superficial, but the symbolism there, the symbolism of the moon, the moon is a potentially, because the moon, moon you know, as, as it waxes has, you know, it has, its light increases, but then it, it also has this idea not only of self-devouring, but during eclipse of actually, you know, seen as quote unquote devouring the sun. So, um, and moonlight itself is considered to be kind of a, a dubious light because it reflects the light of the sun. It doesn't, you know, so when you, what you see in moonlight may not quite be what it appear, appears to be. The moon in the tarot deck um, often has to do with not, not necessarily relying so much on your senses um, or the idea that you're facing a situation that's unclear. So, you know, so the moon has a lot to do with that. But I am going to discuss the moon, the bull, and the Shiva associations, including the, the you know the, her one of the weapons she holds, which is the trident. Okay. And normally when I do this, I try to kind of separate things out a little bit and talk about them individually. But it's going to be a little difficult to do that here because some of the symbolism overlaps. So I just want to highlight that those are kind of the main motifs that I want to talk about when I talk about Maheshwari. 
Okay, so first to start, let's talk about um, her iconography, what she looks like, okay? Um, okay, so this is, here's, here's one, one version of this. They say Maheshwari is depicted seated on Nandi, the bull, and has two or four hands. The three-eyed goddess holds a trident and a drum, while her other two hands are in the form of oops, uh, Abhaya Mudra and Varada Mudra, okay, which are fearlessness and boon-giving mudras. She's adorned with serpent bracelets, the crescent moon, okay, just like Shiva, and had her headdress formed of piled matted hair with a serpent on it, also like Shiva. And, just like Shiva, she also wears a serpent around her neck, okay. And all the weapons that she holds uh, are the same weapons that you will see in the hands of Lord Shiva. So, um, and it's funny, because anybody who knows me personally knows I have a cat that was often referred to, my friends often referred to as Lord Shiva. Um, in fact, the reason I named my cat Shiva, and I had to keep, sometimes I'd refer to him as Mr. Shiva, because people think hear Shiba, S-H-E-B-A, and it was like, they kept saying, oh, she's, I'm like, no, it's a he, um, was because uh, I, had, I had two cats at the time. I had Andromeda, and then I had just adopted this cat from the shelter, and they were two black cats. And then when Andromeda met him for the first time, she jumped up back on her back legs and started to hiss. Like she put her hands up and he actually responded by laying down in front of her, which reminded me of when Kali was on her rampage destroying the world. And then Shiva lays down in front of her to stop her, basically. And um, so it's, it's kind of funny. Um, so at that, I was like, oh, the cat is Shiva. So I, I referred to him as Shiva ever ever since. Um, he unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but um, he was he was an awesome cat. So anyway, that's just a side note. People who know me know about know about about Shiva. But um, okay, so I'm gonna look. Um, I don't. I try not to overquote from books and things. Um, you know, um, unless there's just sometimes unless there's really just not a lot of information. But I think in um, the Theon Press book, A Ferocious, there's a really good introduction to Maheshwati and her, her sort of powers. Um, I have this I have this here, and I'm kind of looking right from the beginning of the chapter here. I have a note, um, page 171, if you happen to own the book. If you don't own the book, uh, if there's still copies available, it's definitely worth getting. Um, okay, so the, the goddess Maheshwati, I'm quoting here from, from Ferocious, uh, which means supreme ruler. Okay, that is that is how that's translated, or supreme god or goddess in this case. Has ancient roots. <clears throat> excuse me. In the Vedas, where her male counterpart Shiva appears in his earlier form as the ferocious deity Rudra, Sanskrit for he who roars. It is good to mention here that Maheshwari is also called Rodri and Rujani, Rudrani, which connects her directly to the earlier figure of Rudra. Rudra was initially a sinister and complicated deity whose functions and status have grown immensely since the Vedic period. The Vedas themselves present Rudra as having had multiple functions, and there are a good number of hymns that attest to his prominence in the Vedic and likely pre-Vedic period. He was an entity that existed beyond the edges of civilization dwelling in the dark forests and burial grounds that were outside the villages. And as we know, this is common to both the Mahavidyas and the Matrikas. Um... Rudra was, and is, lord of the wild beasts, but also of sickness and disease, and had mastery over supernatural ghosts and demonic creatures that followed in his wake. He's more closely associated with the hours of night than those of daylight. When Rudra is invoked in the Vedas, he was usually asked to ward 
off his power from the village and not and to direct it against the enemies of his worshippers. It is not that Rudra was worshipped against as though he were a demon, because there are Vedic hymns that do request the deity to bestow strength, victory, health to the worshipper, as well as to their villages and animals. Nonetheless, Rudra was initially a god that was placated and propitiated to remain in the darkness, where he would restrain those natural and supernatural phenomena which threaten civilization. It is likely that his shrines were on the edge of the village, if not outside it altogether. Over time, while other Vedic deities waned into obscurity, Rudra's cult drew, sorry, Rudra's cult grew, uh, until eventually he became known by one of his cult names, Shiva, meaning kindly in Sanskrit. No longer an obscure marginal god, Shiva becomes a member of the great triad of gods known as the Trimurti, or Tridevas, uh, who are collectively Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. Um, okay. So, just to jump ahead a little, Shiva retains his sinister aspects, but they are now complemented by benign associations. While, for example, Shiva personifies the destructive powers of the cosmos, those powers are understood to be turned first and foremost against evil beings and demons. Shiva is the necessary death that comes before rebirth. Yet Shiva is also now lord of the yoga, the first among all yogis, and the great preceptor of tantric tradition. Shiva's attire suggests all this, as will be evident to anyone who has seen his images or characters depicting him in contemporary Indian epic dramas. Okay, and so he describe, they describe how, um, uh, how Shiva looks. And it says, Shiva's power is so great that he is worshipped not only by lesser gods, but also by otherwise wicked entities that hope to gain his favor and achieve a superior rebirth. Um, with, um, you know, we, we've seen, like, the, we talked about the story of uh, Bandasura um, being one, one good example of this. Um, Shiva also manages to symbolize polar opposites. Uh, he embodies raw sexuality in many of the tantras, as well uh, through his anaconic representation as a phallus. Yes, the Shiva lingam, that's very important. I'm just going to side uh, sidetrack here. The Shiva Lingam is, you know, it, it's portrayed exactly as that. It's a phallus. Sometimes uh, there, if you have it on a small altar at home like I do, it looks like just a little black stone. Sometimes it's actually, you know, a stone formed in the shape of a phallus, usually with kind of a um, ridge off the front, which is usually used for um, pouring offerings. Because at Shivaratri and at other festivals celebrating Shiva, um, you know, the, the libations are poured over the Lingam and they, they run along that little ridge down. Um, so the Shiva Lingam will be, put, you know, honey, ghee, rose water, you know, all the normal offerings that you would give. And then the, the, um, they would put, you know, garlands of flowers and so forth around the Shiva Lingam. At Shivaratri, usually they have um, four separate um, Shiva pujas that go on at different hours of the night. Because um, that was the, that, you know, because Shivaratri is in um, commemoration of when Shiva, you know, drank the poison that was... Um, you know, it was poisoning the, you know, the, the ocean of immortality. He, he drinks that poison and he holds it in his throat um, to, um, you know, and, and, and thereby saves, you know, um, saves life again. But he, but he has this poison in him. Um, and, and that there's, there's, there's a lot of symbolism behind that as well. But, um, but yeah, but we have, we see this in Shiva. Um, so he represents this sexuality, but he also represents total restraint and renunciation. In fact, Shiva at one point, as, as we've discussed in other podcasts, destroys Kama, the god of desire, when Kama tries to strike him with his arrow, because Kama is a little bit like what we think of as Eros or Cupid, you know, the little, you know, the god with the bow and arrow who, you know, hit, when they hit you with their, their bow and arrow, you, you know, you're struck by love. 
And he tries to do this for, you know, for a very good reason, trying to get Shiva to fall in love with Parvati, because since after he doesn't recognize her as the reincarnation of Shakti. Um, but there's a real need, the sages say there's a real need for the two of them to get together, because, you know, his um, lapse into um, austerity and isolation um, and celibacy uh, is, 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 can be destructive of the universe as well. You know, he, the, the lovemaking between Shiva Parvati, Shiva Shakti needs to keep happening in order to keep, um, the creative energy alive. Um, okay. So what, now that's, that's about Shiva, okay. Or Maheshwar or Maheshwara. Um, now, okay. I'm just moving on again, real from ferocious. Again, I'm looking at page 175. Maheshwari, firstly, is not the consort of Shiva. Um, and so they say, mentioned Parvati is actually the, um, is the wife of Shiva and mother of his children. Maheshwari instead is his vital energy and can be understood as the shadowy feminine aspect of Shiva. This becomes especially clear when we examine her iconography. Okay. There's a famous saying that Shiva without his Shakti is a corpse, which is a Shava. Okay. Shava, when you, um, those of who, you who do yoga and have sava, uh, Shavasana or Savasana, uh, Shavasana, that's, um, that's the asana of lay of corp. That's the corpse pose where you lay flat. Okay, so that's Shava. And Maheshwari is the Shakti of Shiva, at least within the Matrika tradition. It's important to make this distinction between Parvati, um, because Parvati does have a rich and vibrant cult following, but Maheshwari is not associated with her in practice or in any textual tradition of which we are aware. Um, there is some, as they mentioned, as I said earlier, there is overlap between Maheshwari and Parvati, because like her other aspects, like Kali, are often called the Shakti of Shiva, and that's where I think the confusion comes in. Um... It seems best, however, to consider the Matrika Maheshwari to be his power and shadow aspect and to consider Parvati Kali to be a separate yet connected goddess. Okay. So, um, okay, so that's just what I had wanted to uh, communicate from the Ferocious book, which I think is, which is, it's excellent. If you're, if you have an interest in the Matrikas and in the subject, it's definitely a volume worth owning. And especially if you have, have a draw towards any kind of practice with the Matrikas, um, it, it's an extremely well-written practical manual for um, how to go about that. Um, okay, so, so let's see, what else do we want to talk about here? Okay, so we have this, we see her as being the Shakti of Shiva. Now, um, I've referred several times to the appearance of the Matrikas in the Chandiput, okay? And in the Chandiput, in that section I was reading about where the, um, the, the Matrikas come out and they start doing battle with the demons, uh, she is referred to, um, you know, Maheshwari is called the Great Seer, okay? S-E-E-R, meaning the one who um, is, implies being someone who is prophetic, and with her trident, okay, so the weapon she attacks with is the trident, the same weapon that Shiva has, okay? Um, now, where else do we see a trident? Well, um, there's other gods that, that carry one, um, uh, most notably Poseidon or Neptune, okay? Um, and what does he use the trident for? Uh, bringing forth springs of water from underground and also causing earthquakes, okay? <clears throat> that's, that's how Poseidon uses it. But there's an implication there of um, bringing forth kind of a creative force or energy, like, you know, water is a spring of life. Or, um, but also there's a destructive element there, too, as earthquakes can be very destructive. So it's interesting how that, that, um, that particular weapon seems to be, um, you, you know, associated in both places. Okay. Um, okay, so now here is where I want to kind of get into the, um, 
the different things. Um, let's go to the vice first. Let's talk about the vice of anger. And then I want to get into the bull and moon associations. Um, okay, so the, the vice of anger. Now, where, where do we see um, Shiva's anger? Okay, when, when he is angry... Um, now in one, in one episode, again, as I had mentioned with the Parvati, he actually reduces the God of, uh, of desire to ashes. And we talk about that in the Tripura Sundari episode, um, because she is the one who eventually restores Kama, you know, and, 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 you know, Rati, uh, his, you know, the spouse, uh, you know, asks Tripura Sundari to please restore the God of love because you can't have a world that has no desire in it. Okay. You can't, um, you know, as we see, as we have discussed in some of these creation mythologies, um, you see this in the ancient Greek, and you also see this in other ancient um, myths, where some of the, the core deities who, be, who are there at the beginning of the universe um, are deities of, um, of, you know, the eros or, or love or, or some equivalent of desire is always present at the start of the universe, okay? Because um, it's that it's that creates that force that there that creates the um, that creates the desire, okay? That that makes um, you know that 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 moves to action. Because if there's no desire, then you don't you know you, you know you're not you're not motivated to create anything, right? So, in order to have a creative act. Um, of any kind, you know, obviously, if you're if you're talking about a sexual act in which you intend to, um, say, create a child, or you know, you know, even if you want to be a little less literal about it, that particular act, you know, there has to be a desire between the two people. I mean, I suppose technically you could, if there's no desire, like if a man has no desire for the woman he's got to have sex with, he's not going to be able to perform. Okay, there has to be desire. And um, I had made a note here about the destruction of Sati or Shakti, um, you know, when she first immolated herself. Um, there's another example of Shiva's anger. So, so we have the anger when he destroys desire, okay? And now we have an angered and grief-stricken Shiva uh, who learns about uh, Sati's death, and he re renders a terrible Tandava, or dance of destruction. And the more he dances, the more destruction arises. Now, later Shiva pulled two locks of hair, and it fell to the ground. Out of one arose Virabhadra, Shiva's destructive and terrible incarnation, having eight hands holding weapons and possessing a dark complexion. The second was Bhadrakali, the supreme goddess's violent and intense incarnation, having 18 hands holding weapons like a discus dagger, trident, spear, mace, scimitar, sword, uh, vadra, conch shell, demon head, drinking vessel, goad, water pot, etc. Shiva ordered them to wreak havoc. And Virabhadra and Bhadrakali were assisted by eight other goddesses um, named uh, Kali, Katyani, uh, Katyayani, Katyayini, sorry, Chamunda, Ishani, Mundamardini, Badra, Vaishnavi, who we're going to talk about in another episode, um, <clears throat> Twarita, who appeared, and, and Twarita, who appeared at their side. Um, in other versions, it was said that first Virabhadra arose, and after he was held captive by Vishnu, who was protecting Daksha, Daksha is, is the mother, of, I'm sorry, the father of, of uh, Shakti or Sati, since he was Vishnu's devotee, and that the Lord had promised him protection in the side, uh, time of need, Shiva created Bhadrakali, who freed Virabhadra and was embedded in him and rendered more powerful. Okay, So um, in his anger, Daksha was decapitated by Virabhadra, while others fell upon Daksha and Brigu's demon armies. 
After the night of horror, Shiva, the all-forgiving, restored all those who were slain to life and granted them his blessings. Even the abusive and culpable Daksha was restored both to his life and his kingship. His severed head was substituted for that of a goat. That kind of reminds me in a way of almost of the, um, the King Midas story to some degree. I mean, it's not it's not anywhere near the same. But if you remember that from Greek mythology, Midas asks for a boon from Dionysus. That every, that he wants to have a golden touch. Everything he touches, and Dionysus is like, okay. But see, then everything he touches, you know, he goes to embrace his daughter, and she turns to gold. He goes to touch his food, and it turns to gold. And then he goes to Dionysus, and he's you know begs to have it removed. And so Dionysus grants his wish, but he gives him a pair of ass's ears, you know, to show you know how stupid he is. So, you know, now not, not all substitutions of, you know, human heads for animal heads or, or human parts for animal parts in these mythologies is necessarily um, pointing out any kind of moral negative or, or you know, punishment. Um, for example, the story of Ganesha or Ganapati, you know, Parvati creates him, creates a little boy um, while she's bathing by the river. She makes him out of clay and she puts him there to, to guard her while she's bathing. Uh, and, you know, so Shiva comes along to find his wife and sees this boy, doesn't know who he is, and slays him, and Parvati gets very upset, and then he says, okay, okay, you know, placates her, okay, I'll, I'll bring him back to life, but he's already cut his head off, so he says, I'll give him the head of the next uh, animal that comes by, which happened to be an elephant, so um, Ganesha got an elephant head. So, and Ganesha is in no way, um, you know, Ganesha's obviously a very auspicious deity, so... Um, Okay, so so after this, it says, having learned his lesson, Daksha spent his remaining years as a devotee of Shiva. Um, and then, um, okay, so it was, um, yeah, okay. So we so when we talk about the anger aspect, you know, the, the implication there, uh, because there are no separate, again, no separate stories of Maheshwiti, Maheshwiti is... Um, She's this aspect of Shiva um, that that can that can rise to anger and that can cause destruction. Okay, and that's why, as a matrika, um, that's that's what makes her a very dangerous force. Um, and in the Chandipat, she's using her energy, the the energy associated with the trident, which is usually a creative energy, um, to uh, you know to destroy the demons and to um, you know. Uh, you know, you know in, in the interest of restoring balance. But again, you see this idea of something that is intended to be creative can also be destructive. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about the, the bull symbolism. And for this, it was interesting. I was looking back at Joseph Campbell's Occidental Mythology, as I mentioned. And he, he also brings these together, the mythology of Shiva and the bull and the moon, okay, and how all of these kind of fit together. And he's talking about it in terms of the Minoan um, Minotaur, okay? Um, okay. Uh, so he's talking about this idea of these horns of consecration and things that were seen in Minoan symbolism, which I, I don't want to go into that because I feel like that's a dubious claim. I'm not sure that that's how that can or should be interpreted. I know a lot of people do, um, but that I just, you know, but I'm more interested in what he, um, what he says here about the other. And one of the things he says, he says, in India, Shiva, the great lord, whose animal is the bull, whose attribute is the trident, and the name of whose consort Parvati means daughter of the mountain, and he's drawing a parallel here to the symbolism found in um, Minoan Crete. Her animal, moreover, being the lion, 
is in one aspect known as dwelling with the goddess on the summit of Mount Kailasa, but at the same time is honored chiefly as the same in the symbol of the lingam, or phallus, rising from the waters of the abyss and penetrating the yoni, or vulva, of the goddess Earth. Shiva as the cosmic dancer is shown with his right foot planted firmly on back of a prostrate dwarf named Ignorance and the left lifted in a cross kick. The meaning of this posture is said to be that with the right foot of the god of the trident, with the right foot, the god of the trident is driving his divine creative energy into the sphere of mortal birth and with the left yielding release from the temporal round. Um, and he says, I cannot help wondering whether similar thought may not have been implied by the posture of the front leg of the bull. Um, okay, so let me skip over here because he's going back into some Mesopotamian um, references about, about how to sacrifice a bull. Um, but then Campbell goes on to say, the mythic lunar bull, the lord of the rhythm of the universe, and to whose song all mortality is dancing in a round of birth, death, and new birth, was called to mind by the sounds of the drum, strings, and reed flutes of the temple orchestras, and those attending were set in accord thereby with the aspect of being that never dies. The beatific yet impassive enigmatic Mona Lisa um, features of the bull slain by the lion bird suggests that the mode of being uh, known to initiates is the wisdom beyond death, beyond changing time. Through his death, which is no death, he is giving life to the creatures of the earth, even while indicating with his lifted forefoot uh, the leftward horn of the mythic symbol. Okay. <clears throat> so he says, The symbol here seems to represent the plane of juncture of earth and heaven, the goddess and the god, who appear to be two but are one. So, okay, he goes into the Sumerian myth of, um, you know, of, of the creation myth with, uh, you know, um, as he puts it, he says, you know, uh, from what we know, the ancient Sumerian myth, heaven, on and earth, key, were in the beginning a single undivided mountain, Anki, of which the lower part, the earth, was female and the upper heaven, male. But the two were separated as Adam into Adam and Eve and their son, Anlil, in the Bible by their creator, Yahweh, um, whereupon the world of temporality appeared, as did when Eve ate the apple. Um, okay, so he talks about that. Um, let's see. Ritual marriage and... Um, canubium was to be understood as a reconstruction of the primal undifferentiated state both in meditation the psychological aspect for the refreshment of the soul and in act magical aspect for the fertilization and renovation of nature uh, whereby it was also to be recognized that there is a plane or mode of being where that primal state is ever present though to the mind and the eye of day all seems to be otherwise the state of the ultimate bull that is to say is invisible it's black or pitch black okay which is also like Kali um, and, and I know Alan Watts has made reference to the blackness of Kali, uh, with regard to that, um, uh, that, that sort of, uh, abyss of invisibility there. Uh, thus it can be said that just in the Indian symbolic form of dancing Shiva, so likewise in this Sumerian terracotta plaque, a statement is to be recognized of the archaic Bronze Age philosophy that he discusses in another volume, um, uh, it's, in its primary unintended mode, this philosophy is properly comparable to the childlike state of mind termed by Dr. Uh, Jean Piaget in disassociation. In its developed higher forms, however, it has been the most important single creative force in the history of civilization. Its import is experienced immediately in the ultimate mystical rapture of non-duality or mythic identification and is symbolized in the various imageries of ancient Egypt's secret of the two partners, China's Tao, India's Nirvana, and Japan's development of the Buddhist doctrine of the flower wreath. 
and he also talks about a touch of it in um, a certain passage in, in the image of paradise in Isaiah, which I'm not going to repeat here. Um, but he also goes on, he, he's, you know, talking about a few other things. Um, now he talks about Shiva again, and he said, the God holds the drum lifted in his right hand. Now he's talking about a, a particular image called Shiva Nataraj, okay, which is the, the dancing Shiva. Okay, where he has a drum, he, he holds a drum and is lifted in his right hand, the drum beat of time, the beat of creation, while on the palm of his left hand is the fire of the knowledge of immortality by which the bondages of time are destroyed. Shiva emanates flames, as do the four legs of the bull, and in Shiva's hair the skull of death is worn as an ornament alongside the crescent moon of rebirth. Okay, so we see this connection between the moon and the bull. Shiva is the lord of the beasts. So, too, is the great Sumerian lord of death and rebirth, uh, Dumuzi Tammuz Adonis, whose animal is this beatific bull. So, too, furthermore, is the Greek god Dionysus, known like Shiva as the cosmic dancer, who is both the bull torn apart and the lion tearing. Okay, and he quotes um, from another source. Um, and he says, It's something of a shock to many when the name Dionysus appeared among the words deciphered from Linear B. Okay, and uh, Dionysus, by the way, he's making some comparisons to Shiva. Dionysus, I think I've said this before, is also comparable to Jesus. Um, that's a whole topic. I think at some point, even though Dionysus is not a, technically a feminine figure, um, I'm probably going to end up having a podcast on Dionysus sometime in the future because um, he is such a complicated bridge figure, and he, he does embody a lot of dark feminine qualities as well. So... Um, at some point, I will I will return to that, but I don't want to digress into that too much now. So he goes on. He talks about um, Horus being symbolized as a falcon, um, the sun flying east to west, um, entered her mouth of the evening, um, to be born again the next dawn, and was thus indeed in his night character the bull of his mother, where by day, uh, as ruler of the world, he was a keen-eyed bird of prey. Moreover, the animal of Osiris, which is the bull, was incarnate in the sacred Apis bull, which was ceremonially slain every 25 years, thus relieving the pharaoh himself of the obligation of a ritual regicide. Okay. Um, now, he also talks about the Minotaur, and he thinks that, uh, let's see, um, he's talking about a particular piece of art where the Minotaur seems to be attacked by a man-lion. Okay. And this analogy with the bull and the lion bird of Sumerian Sumer cannot be denied. Okay. Um, for as in Sumer, so in Crete, whereas the lion was the animal of the blazing solar heat, which both slays the moon and parches vegetation, the bull was the animal of the moon, the waning and waxing god, by the magic of whose night dew the vegetation is restored, the lord of tides and the productive powers of the earth, the lord of women, the lord of the rhythm of the womb. Um, in the picture language of mythology, the image of the Minotaur equates the idea of the moon bull with that of the moon man or moon king, and so suggests that the king's place may have been taken by a bull in Crete. Okay, so he talks about that. Um, and then the uh, ritual slaying of bulls. Now, okay, so that's all I'm going to read from Campbell. But, it, okay, so interestingly we see here this connection between the moon and the bull and um, this, this kind of dark, this female fertility that comes out of darkness that is this symbol uh, that they see as symbolized by the bull. But the bull also has very strong masculine associations too, just as Shiva is also um, heavily associated with that. Um, the bull, you know, we think of Taurus the bull um, in the uh, astrological, 
and the qualities that are associated with with Taurus, including being earthed and being grounded um, in the material plane, also perhaps being very stubborn. Um, and, you know, but but generally very plodding, very practical um, and, and very earthbound. Um, and, you know, but there's also there's also a, an implication of strength there. And of course, when we think of bulls too, you know, the idea of fertility. So, yeah, so we kind of had this idea. Now, Maheshwari rides the bull, just as Maheshwara or Maheshwar does. And, you know, so so we have in this 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 goddess, this very fiery sort of angry goddess who likes, you know, who, who is kind of this shadow of Shiva. She's almost like the moon aspect of Shiva then. She's kind of like this, um, this kind of dark background figure um, that is loaded with symbolism that's both destructive and creative at the same time. And I often find, I find this to be very interesting because, um, you know, because when we talk about these things um, in, in a Western sense, we, we tend to like to separate things. We tend to talk about life and death as though they're, they're in a battle with each other or diametrically opposed. We live our lives as though we're in a battle with death, especially when we're younger, we don't care. Nobody thinks about it. As you get older, you know, um, you have the, the, the proverbial midlife crisis, you know, where you're, you're trying to look younger and be younger and, you know, accomplish as much as you can before, you know, you, you croak and, um, it's, you know, and, and as we get older and older, you know, we, you know, you do things to fight wrinkles, people get plastic surgery or Botox, and, you know, we, we're always in a battle with age and, and with death. And, I mean, not everybody does this, obviously, but, but there is kind of a cultural idea about um, having to do with age. And so it, it's, um, yeah, and, you know, so again, you're, you're seeing these motifs having to do with the passage of time. Um, and the connection between life and death, because in the West, we have been instructed that death is sort of an unnatural state. Um, when we, when by the time we get to Christianity, there's the idea, you, you hear, for example, of the idea of, quote unquote, Christ conquering death. You hear this in St. Paul. Um, a wonderful book on this, if you want to read about um, this um, sort of attempt to eradicate or exercise death, is uh, James Hillman's The Dream in the Underworld. That is a fantastic book to read um, where he talks about um, this, this idea that death now is somehow supposed to be something that's done away with, okay, that we get rid of. And you, you, you don't. It's, 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 an, it's an integral part of life. And that's why you have a deity like Shiva, you know, with the powers bestowed by Maheshwadi, you know, that, that he has, that... Um, that have this kind of desirable fertility aspect to them, but also, you know, this, um, it's this fire that, that can be very, it can be very destructive and it can be also very creative at the same time. Um, and there's, and that's a complexity there. I've always, I've always been fascinated with Shiva because Shiva is such a complex figure. Um, and I think to me, I, I think, and, I, and, I, and again, I, I don't want to be repetitive podcast to podcast, but one of the things, this is another example of one of those things about Hinduism that I'm like, yeah, it's expressing something in this mythological form through this deity, um, you know, the qualities and the complexity and, and the apparent paradoxes that exist in one image that they are... I don't know how to put it. It's like they're, you know, they, that's kind of how it actually is. And, and we're kind of taught like, well, no, it's got to be one way or the other. And it's like, no, it's not one way or the other. It's not pick a side. 
it's not, um, you know, are you on the good side or the bad side? I mean, um, that's an idea that we, at least we purport to get from uh, Zoroastrianism, you know, that cosmic battle between good and evil. But, you know, the, the reality is that there really isn't one. Um, that's the reality of Tantra, the idea that there is no such thing as auspicious and inauspicious. That's all in the mind. Um, when you get to an ethical mode of living, um, that's, that's, where we, that's where you have religion on the social level. Campbell had talked about four levels of religion. He talks about the metaphysical, um, which is kind of the mystery, you know, mystery of existence, and, as you will, you know, the unknowns. Then you have the cosmological level, you know, how is the universe created and the world and people and so on and so forth. And then you have the, um, the uh, social level, okay, which is the level that most people think about religion as functioning on as a social level, because especially in the West where our religions are very highly ethical and about ethics and about, you know, God is good and, you know, um, I think about, for instance, stories I was taught in Catholic school, you know, about the little angels on your shoulder that writing down all your good and bad deeds. You know, this whole idea of, of judgment or God as a judge or a king or a, and a judge, okay? Um, so we have that, that aspect of, um, of that. That's the social aspect. And when people are critical of religion, generally what they are critical of is the social aspect. You know, you're criticizing, for example, priests for molesting children. Yes, that's a violation. That's a social violation. They don't, um, that's about, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a trust and a power that goes with um, being a, considered to be a religious person of, of any stripe. And um, when that power is abused, you know, it's just kind of like the same problems we're having now with the police. You know, they're given a certain power and authority that's trusted, and if there's a perception that that power is being abused, or if it is being abused, then that unfortunately um, ends up degrading the whole system, whether the whole system deserves to be degraded or not, okay? So you, you have these ideas, and, um, and a lot of them seem to center around power, Um Okay, and then, okay, so sorry, those are the three aspects. The fourth level that Campbell talks about is the psychological or pedagogical level. So this is basically how you take these kinds of narratives and use them in your own life. You know what I mean? Just like you have people, like, you, you talk about somebody, for instance, who goes to church on Sunday, but then when they go home, you know, they may have their own interpretation of, of God or their own experience or their own method or way or belief that may differ from what other people think. At least a differ may differ in some fashion, even if some of the general tenets are the same. You know, they may, you know, individually how it affects us is, is going to be different. Just like there's people who go to services and then go home and are never affected by them at all. So, you know, it's, it's what affects you on each of these levels. And what I think is, um, you know, we, we always tend to think of everything on the social level. We look at everything on the moral level. You know, we see certain things that happen. It's the reason people will look at ancient religions and say, oh, isn't it terrible? I mean, actually, some of the ancients did this, too. This is where philosophy comes in. Look, isn't it terrible how Zeus cheats on his wife all the time or, or whatever? You see these things, and it's like that's not, that's not really the point. Okay, I mean, yeah, you can look at it that way, but, you know, or talking about Medusa in, in feminist terms, and I'm like, okay, you can— but that's not entirely what the point is. Um, I mean, that is an interpretation that you can you can pursue, but you want to be careful about looking at everything just through that lens. And I love Greek, I love Hindu mythology because it's so complex. It's like you can't you can't easily 
pigeonhole things into certain ethical categories or say that, you know, this God is like this or is like that or is always beneficial or is always, there's, there's this, um, you know, they're both auspicious and inauspicious. I think all of the gods are. Um, you know, there may, there may be very few exceptions to that. Um, even, even a goddess, you know, sometimes they'll separate them out. Like, take a goddess like Lakshmi, for example, who's almost entirely beneficent. Um, she has an aspect called a Lakshmi, which we've associated with Dumavati. And so, you know, but that's regarded kind of as like the sister she avoids, you know what I mean? It's, it's this, um, but, but she is another aspect of Lakshmi. Just it's, it's the more, you know, negative one. Sometimes you'll see that, that, that very, very, um, distinct separation, but that's not common in Hinduism. Most of the, the deities and Shiva is definitely one of the most complex because he, he works with gods and demons alike. And, and he is about, um, you know, we talk about Brahma as the creator, but, but on some more fun, deeper fundamental level, Shiva Shakti are the ones, uh, are creating the universe and creating that vital energy that, 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 that forms everything. Um, but Shiva is also about destroying that. And I think the Maheshwari aspect is a little bit more in accord with that destructive aspect. That's how you, that's where, when you see her presented, um, not that she's, again, and it's not presented as a negative, but you do see her in this, this, you know, being represented in these very angry forms, um, which gives her a kind of kinship in a way to Bervi, although Bervi is considered to be, um, uh, and again, there's, there's another thing that that's considered to be a, a projection or manifestation of Parvati or, you know, or that, that aspect of Shakti of his, of his wife. So, um, Bervi in that sense yeah, where, where, you know, again, similar, overlapping roles, but not exactly the same thing. One is the vital force itself. The other is, is the forces that that vital force interacts with, if that makes any sense. So I think that's all I'm going to say about Maheshwadi. Um, and uh, next time I think I'm going to be doing, I'm just trying to think what I've left here. I think I'm going to be doing Vaishnavi next. So we'll see uh, next time. Um... I just want to say, um, I want to say thank you for listening. Um, if you're interested in becoming a patron, please visit patreon.com slash Chthonia. Um, if, uh, you wish to have any of my other services, because I, in addition to, um, talking about the dark feminine, I also do tarot readings. I do other kinds of Oracle readings. I do, um, and I do uh, Reiki sessions right now with COVID. I have developed a, a distance Reiki session, um, method that actually works really well. So I don't actually have to be in the room with somebody to, to do it. Um, all of that's on my site, liminalreiki.com. And all of that does tie in with Chthonia because as I've said, it does tie in with my, um, working on the liminal or on the boundaries and helping, helping people do that in a more practical sense. Um, and, uh, whatever else, um, if you like this podcast, leave a review. If you, um, you know, just want to support otherwise on social media, please subscribe on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, it's the Cathonia channel. Um, you know, subscribe and get hit the bell notification so that you will know when, um, new podcasts or other videos are coming out. And, um, on uh, other social media, I'm, I'm listed as Cathonia podcast, two words on Facebook, one word on Twitter and Instagram. And, uh, and like I said, I do a daily, uh, tarot reading on Instagram as well, um, that people really seem to like. So I keep doing that. And with that, uh, again, I want to say thank you again. Thank you to my patrons for their, their continued support. 
And, um, and thank you to all of you who continue to support me in, in some one way or another. And so I will see you in the next episode.